cover leading practices used in software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of those people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Julie Gunderson, at Julie underscore Gund on Twitter. Today, we're going to be talking about security. We're joined by B. Hughes and Sarai Rosenberg, security engineers from PagerDuty. To get us started, I'd like our engineers to give us a little bit of background on themselves. B, would you kick us off? Hi, I'm B. I've been doing the security lock for about 20 years now, starting off in merry old England and then flying my way around the world at great carbon footprint expense. I originally got interested in into security from the old BBS scene, which used to incur horrendous phone bills because in England we didn't have free local calling and um, that led to some interesting family conversations. From there I fell in with a good bunch of miscreants who started going to things like 2600 meetups because this was in the 90s. I hear they still happen. And from there, I really started to get into Linux and Unix. I had a, my first Linux machine was running a one point something kernel. I am that old. And having OpenBSD laptops, one so good that if you ever accidentally touched the trackpad, you had to plug in an external keyboard before the keyboard continued working. So in the end, I just unplugged the trackpad internally in the laptop, which is why the year of Linux on the desktop is something I celebrate every year. From that kind of security scene, it naturally progressed into exploring the security of other people's machines on a kind of pro rata, not entirely upfront basis, because that was the internet in the 90s, and was able to deliver many security reports by the way of root shells. I eventually realized that this kind of could become a career, because the body piercing industry was probably not going to pay as well, so... Um, I managed to get a job at a local ISP, because again, early 2000s, and deal with like modems and mail servers and news servers and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and out of that, just slowly built a career of reading frack, occasionally finding old Solaris exploits to break into machines that people have forgotten passwords about, running too much Nmap and taking out networks and that kind of thing. And here I am today. Well, thank you for joining us. Sarai, how about you? So in 2015, the CEO that I worked for told me to research security standards and compliance and give them some recommendations. I did that. And it turned out I was pretty good at that. And I got really into making recommendations and I kept doing it. And they kept letting me do it. So it just built and grew and grew and it was a lot of fun. So I decided to keep doing that and pursue security roles at other places. And I still continue to do that. Uh, find it really good opportunity to connect with quite a lot of variety of different people and learn about the things that they care about and help them improve the things that they do. So then can you tell us, like, how would you describe security for anybody that's new to security? To me, security is about assessing risk. It's about finding the things that could go wrong, the things that could be threats to your system, deciding what you care about in your system, the things that you want to protect, and then deciding what could you do about that? Where could you cut off 
um, potential risks, whether it's an attack that's in progress or securing your infrastructure, anything that you do can be improved and prevent any kind of threat to it. Thank you. What about you, B? What are your thoughts? What would you describe security as to somebody who's new to it? Ron, I would. The point Soraya is really good because it's all about managing risk. You can eliminate risk despite how much the RSA conference says otherwise. And it is about um, reduce harm reduction in a sense, in that you can't secure everything. Not everything in your company is the most important thing. And you want defending from everyone equally. So I think those are, are really salient points. Security, if you ask a conference, uh, it's about finding O'Day and having the biggest exploit and breaking into the most things. Uh, if you ask someone who actually does, I guess, the defensive blue team side, then uh, it's trying to make your business be as safe as it can while still functioning as a business. That kind of gets lost, I think, in the beautiful security view of the world where like we can make this secure yes but no one can log in so we're kind of going to go out of business something like that thank you and i feel like you were headed down a, a really interesting path there like if you were to debunk a myth with security what what would the biggest one be what would you say this is the thing that i hear over and over and it's just not true that there's one solution that works for everyone, that there's what what is a big risk for me, for my product, for my software, is going to be a risk for every software. The threats that I have to care about, the things that I want to protect are completely different than the threats that you may want to protect and the things that you care about. Thank you. So B and Sarai, I'd love to hear... What are the values of the security team at PagerDuty? And beyond what those values are, why are they your values? Many of us had an experience with security culture that we didn't like. We gathered at PagerDuty to build something better. We worked for companies that would name and shame employees that failed phishing tests, and we decided that we wanted to do something better. We want to do we want to make it easy to do the right thing, to build something secure. We try to make it easy to bring in other people, never hesitate to escalate. We try to achieve the maximum value. Tell me more about this phishing tests and naming and shaming. What were practices that happened that you see out there with that? Phishing is inevitable uh, all over the place. Everyone is going to get phished at some point or never. And every company is going to have some employee who clicks on a link and opens something. Phishing is very, very good in 2020. So we can't prevent the phishing. But one of the things that we try to do is teach people to reduce the phishing. We teach people the things that they can look for to spot a phishing attempt, to learn to use their email and the ways that they log in and authenticate with services more securely. And some of the things that go on, some companies will send out internal phishing tests where they'll like hire a company or do it internally to send out a phishing test. And it's a fake email out to all of your employees. Hey, can you fill out this form and put in your username and password? And you try to trick your employees and you always catch a couple of them. And well, 
a lot of companies will name those employees, will bring it out, will call them out. And even if they don't broadcast it across the company, they'll bring it to that employee and say, hey, you failed this phishing test. And it feels bad. It's not a good experience to fail a phishing test and go, well, shit, what do I do? Like, I failed this. How do I do better? So we can help reduce phishing without having to shame people and make people feel bad for failing something. It's okay if you fail. It's okay if you click on something. Thank you. It's, it's almost like embracing failure, right? I like that, not shaming people and not setting them up to fail. B, how about you? I was just going to add to that. You have whole teams of people whose job it is to open PDFs, like recruiting. They Their job is to accept anonymous PDFs off the internet of people who they want to employ and thus open them. So telling people to not open dumb, in quotes, attachments is the opposite of, like, it is not their fault. Their job involves this risk, and they are not at fault for opening PDFs. You should give them a way to open PDFs or whatever, present this information in a secure way, not chastise them for doing their job, because they will do their job or they will not have a job. So they will just not listen to you. And that is, and they are doing completely the right thing by that. So anyone who's like, oh, idiot user shouldn't click on links or open PDFs, like, no, they're doing the right thing. You need to update what you're doing. So with a team that has strong values like yours, how do you impart those values or give those to the rest of the company? For myself, after going through the security training at PagerDuty, I learned really valuable, real-life things that applied beyond my badging in and out at work. How did you all design that training to get people excited? We try to make the security training fun because we want it to be relatable to their work. We want it to be interesting and be laughs because not everyone lockpicks in their work, but really beyond that, there are interesting things and fun, interesting ideas that we can extract from little lessons like lockpicking that a lot of these things are surmountable. But by teaching them that maybe we can surmount this level or this level, that we still have additional layers of security practices that keep us safe, that even if someone can lockpick and get in through our doors, we still check their IDs when they come in through in and we, we want to make sure that they we only have familiar employees walking around the place and we try to find things that people can use so that they understand that security is about defense in depth it's about layers of security it's about maybe one layer can be bypassed but there are other layers going on and in our trainings we have little tidbits and little examples that are quick and easy and understandable and quick little things that you can directly apply to your work or lessons that you can extract security ideas that you can improve the ways that you do things, the way that you understand risks, and the way that you understand the relationship of our team to everyone at the company. That if someone is going to get fished and they end up doing something that exposes some information or financial exchange through the phishing attempt, we're not going to shame them. We're going to help them fix it. And it is not their responsibility. It is our collective responsibility to help improve that. You know, I feel that is one of the things that you have done well is you have made your team very approachable. Security is not the enemy. 
We want to work collaboratively with you. And it started with that training. But Sarai, you talked about lockpicking. And I feel like some of our listeners may not understand why we learn about lockpicking here at PagerDuty as part of security. B, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Sure. Locks are a wonderful analogy to for cyber's security in that locks are actually pretty terrible. The picking locks is actually not that hard. The majority of consumer locks, especially in North America, are not particularly challenging to pick. Um, so you would think, why is no why aren't houses broken into by lock picks all the time? Uh, and I'm sure someone will cite one example where this happened once and thus proved me wrong. But by and large, it's much easier to just force a door open with a crowbar, which doesn't require a ton of additional skills and tools or break a window or find a door that's unlocked. Yet we still have locks on our doors because they provide some security while not providing perfect security. And I'm confident there are people out there who spend lots of time researching to get the best locks from Europe that are unpickable other than by three people in Belgium. But that's like threat modeling. The majority of homes are not going to be lock-picked into uh, if they are going to be burgled in some way. It adds a layer of security. It is not a 100% layer of security. And picking locks is fun because it makes you realize that we've all been living with this myth that locks are impenetrable and you must have the key. And lock-picking is some dark art. And locksmiths are definitely worth the hundreds of dollars they charge at 2 a.m. when you're locked out of your apartment but actually it's the adage of they're designed to keep honest people honest, which I agree with, but also it's like, well, they're designed to stop like 99% of people just marching into your house and acquiring a new television. And that works enough that it is a good addition. And I like that it really is a physical representation of what we're talking about with security and technology. And thank you for all of this. Shifting into some more operational methodologies of the team. Let's talk a little bit about incident response. How does the security team tackle incident response? When I joined PagerDuty, I was new to incident response. And one thing that they clarified for me is that PagerDuty's security's incident response is a little bit different than security incident response in general, because we have a mixture of traditional security incident response, which is responding to active attackers or breaches and figuring out what went on, doing the forensic investigation, closing off attack routes. And we also have more traditional DevOps incident response, where we maintain our services that we have for security, like secret management. And so we have a collection of incident response that we have to uh, make sure that we're maintaining our own services. And as I started, I watched uh, the other people on our team reduce all the amount of noise and the amount of alerts that we got. And so they would go through this process of noticing that we had way too many alerts that were not actionable and getting rid of those. And then there would be alerts that were useful, but we were getting too many. And so we had to do something to fix those services or improve the way we were handling that or secure infrastructure in some different way so we wouldn't get these kinds of invalid login attempt kind of alerts. And we kept iterating on that. And every time we tuned down one alert, we'd open up another route and we'd go on to something else and say, okay, We've also noticed that we're getting some fraud, and so now we're going to look and monitor some fraud that's coming in, 
or we're going to have this new source of data about potential threats to our systems, and we're going to monitor this too, and we keep adding on new things and then reducing them. And so it's this cycle of tuning our alerts as we add more and more monitors. And tuning is so important because, like you said, eliminating the noise, reducing the noise, which helps with alert fatigue. It makes life better for your engineers. Be you and I have talked in the past a little bit about reducing the noise and, well, getting rid of stuff. Do you want to give us some practical advice on how to get rid of stuff? How to identify what you don't need? Does this service bring you joy? The easiest way to secure a system is not to have it in the first place, because then you don't need to secure it. Um, there's been, I remember Facebook having a bug bounty drama over some service that someone found that they then went in and found AWS creds that then led to this, blah, blah, blah. So by having management of your thing, of your enterprise things, whatever, you can have fewer things you need to secure, which is ideal. Also with alerts, as Sarai spoke about, the target breach, I believe, did actually have IDS alerts for the thing that happened, but the knock or sock, there we go, that's not an overloaded term. Received thousands upon thousands, so it was lost in the noise. So step one in buying an IDS, don't. Step two, if you do by mistake, delete all the rules and then slowly add them in because like every IDS rule set has way too many things in to actually be useful. I strongly advocate often too much for having high value and high signal alerts over things that might be an alert but might not that goes off a lot because I think as humans, we're generally lazy pattern matching machines and after a while of seeing a same or similar alert, we will just assume that all alerts like that are of limited value. But ones that infrequently go off and you're like, okay, I will actually investigate this. And alerts should have outcomes such as, I mean, at least in the security world, like if this alert wasn't useful, then we will change it to make it useful. We will filter more things. We will tweak the alert. We will change the window in which it panics about, or we will add more things in, whatever. But having alerts that are high quality is so much better than just having lots of alerts. So I'm I'm keen of getting rid of alerts or systems or things that generate email that don't need to generate email. Please don't send me cron email ever. It doesn't need to happen. Um, Because you're wasting time by getting humans to do things that computers can. And that is the whole point of these amazing labor-saving devices. And by trying to get humans to do bad pattern matching on things, we do ourselves a service and we waste Amazon's CPUs. B, thank you for that. I really enjoy the focus around the high quality and high value alerts. Let's talk about some quick wins that our listeners can employ right off the bat. Quick wins are something that I learned on PagerDuty Security because it's about reducing our risks. That we, we have so many risks out there and we're never going to be able to eliminate all of them. And so if we look at one particular topic and say, oh, well, I want to reduce this risk or eliminate this risk, there's a thousand things that we could do. Well, let's, let's implement something that, well, let's have access controls for AWS IAM. And at first glance, 
we have this grand idea of, well, we could build a, a service and have a user interface and then store all this config information. And we'll have a database of the current permissions. Then we'll store the diffs. And then every time someone makes a request, we can decide which things. All of that is really complicated. But let's start with basic basic things. Let's start with the very things that are easiest to implement. Is there something that we could implement that would take a few hours, a couple days, rather than something that's going to take weeks of work from a team and build a whole project around it? So we start with something that's quick and easy, and we get that quick win, and we build up from there. And we look across our stack and we say, well, here are the risks that we want to reduce, and here's the quick wins that we can take. And then we look from there at, well, how do we build this up into something? Where do we want to spend our time on bigger projects beyond those quick wins? Fantastic. B, do you have anything to add? So further to that, security has always been obsessed with the kind of ridiculous notion of a binary of security, of things must be 100% secure. And we'll push for something going from 98% secure to 99% secure rather than trying to go from 0% secure to 50% secure. Um, and like, the industry is slowly realizing that that might not be the best approach. And like having a security win not be perfect is better than pretending that you can get to 100%. Certainly the, the battle for everyone must have impossible to guess passwords, which kind of ignores phishing. But then you just turn on 2FA by something that's like turning on SMS 2FA. And you're like, suddenly now they need to compromise your phone or your phone provider, which is doable, rather than just get your password. So to step up and like, people have often said the one password storing of 2FA codes means it's not 2FA, but it changes the threat model from you must now compromise someone's one password account to you must steal their password off the wire because it still has a notion of a second factor. It is not as secure as another device, but it is a step up. And if it means that or not having 2FA, I will have that every time. Fantastic. Now, there are two things that we ask every guest on this show. So starting with you, B, what's one thing you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? I think most things, because I seem to take very strong opinions and then six months down the line find that they're entirely wrong and then spend years trying to backtrack them. So maybe don't listen to me on anything. I had a whole QueryCon talk about why I made the wrong decision with OzQuery and building our own intrusion detection system in-house. So like that could have saved me years of work. Yeah, I guess that like that's there there are many documented times I've been wrong and continue to. Sarai, how about you? One thing you wish you would have known sooner. As a mathematician and insecurity professional, I have extremely low risk tolerance and I wish I had realized that I have very much lower risk tolerance than most security people or most software people in general. And I should just go for it. Go try something. See if it works. See what happens. If I break something, whatever, I can fix it. As long as I have a plan to go backwards, then might as well try it. Now... Is there anything about running software in production that you're glad we did not ask you about today? How do we delete encryption keys or 
any data for that matter. The little hidden secret is we can't. We really can't. <laughs> How about you, B? But the beauty is it largely doesn't matter. And as a mathematician, that will drive you crazy. And as a security person, you will be like, fine, I'll eventually maybe concede some of that. But don't buy an Intel CPU. <laughs> I think my word of wisdom is, by and large, stop worrying about your crypto, because that's probably not where you're going to get owned in a security sense. Because if you use libraries, you'll probably be fine versus there will be a new bug in OpenSSL. Or as my partner Sophie Schmig likes to say, cryptography problems are actually social problems. So if you want to be able to encrypt anything, if you need to be able to protect your data, if you're a journalist, it depends on your use case. For software, doesn't matter what kind of cryptography we use. But if you need to protect yourself from governments and nation-state attackers, if you're a journalist, please find good encryption techniques. Please find good encryption tools and use them. B and Sarai, I want to thank you for being part of our security episode today. And for those of you out there listening, to view the training and learn a little bit about picking locks, you can go to sudo.pagerduty.com. To learn more about our incident response process here, you can go to response.pagerduty.com. And as always, join the community and be part of the conversation at community.pagerduty.com. Thank you for your time and for listening. This is Julie Gunderson. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of this show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.